Welcome to Thrive. It's great to have you. Great to be back at Thrive again. I feel like I'm going to just thrive tonight. I, I agree. I, I thrive, think I'm thriving right now. I think that's exactly what's going to happen. Well, this year, our theme for our year has been Cornerstone. Christ is the foundation of life, marriage, and family. We talk about that a lot when we're talking about marriage. When we're talking about parenting, the most important thing is our relationship with Christ, the strength and maturity of our own faith. Tonight, we kind of want to take that and apply that towards our, our kids, thinking about how the most important thing as we think about raising children is, are they a, are they a Christian? Are they going to follow Christ? And, and so what we want to do tonight is kind of have a discussion and eventually open it up to some questions on this topic, but to have a discussion under the title of leading your kids to Christ and talking with you and hopefully getting very practical about what that looks like. So even just to start, thinking through that idea, talking to your kids about the gospel, about how to become a Christian, how would you go about doing that? At what age would you go about doing that with, with children? Day one. Day one. That's right. So next, the baby's there. Next question. <laughs> no, I mean, let's start with the whole reason. I mean, you've stated it, the most important thing, but why is it the most important thing? Jesus put it this way, what would it profit a man to gain the entire world and forfeit his soul? Okay, and the problem is you live in the world as I do, and they're telling us success in life is this, this, and this. And you might be deceived into thinking you've got great kids if they're great soccer players, they get 4.0, they're going to a great college one day, they get a great job, they got a great spouse, they got great grandchildren they've given you, and you could sit back and really think everything went well and you were a great parent. And Jesus said, what would that profit that person if they got all of that, you had the perfect kid and everyone's coming to you going, oh, it's great kids, but they're not saved. That, that, I mean, that has to be something you grapple with every day. And I have to tell you, the number one reason, I think, at least among people in this age group, parents, not your age group, but the next age group you're about to get into, who defect from good biblical theology, in other words, another way to put it is they begin to deny Christ and his words is because they have so idolized their children, they watch their children go astray and become apostate, proved to not be saved, and they adjust their theology. So not only do your kids have the potential of, of missing the boat because we have not done our job as parents. I know this is a God thing, but our job in leading them to Christ, but they could eventually, eventually imperil your relationship with God. Because I see it time and time again. The next generation, and I say the next phase, not next generation, next phase of life for you is to be sitting around in a group like I would be in talking about our kids in college and our kids getting married and our kids having children. And, and so many of those folks start to really defect from biblical truth because they're trying to reconcile in their own mind their kid's life to what the Bible says. And because they can't do it, they're not going to change the status in their mind of their children because precious can never be in their mind a non-Christian. They're going to change their view of Scripture. They're going to deny the truth of the Bible. Your parenting is critically important, not only because all that really matters in the end is not if your kid goes to a good school, is a great athlete, has great friends, or produces great grandchildren for you. It's whether or not they're saved. Everything else can be wrong with their lives. But if they have a genuine faith in Christ, uh, that's all that matters. And secondarily, isn't that what you want? Isn't that what John said it about spiritual children, but he has no greater joy than to see his children walking in the truth. That's what you want. And that means you're going to have to work harder 
much harder at their spiritual development than you do whether or not they get great grades, whether or not they go uh, and play in, in uh, you know, club soccer or get on the all-star game in Little League, uh, the all-star team. That really doesn't matter. It does not matter. doesn't matter if they get athletic scholarships. It doesn't matter if they get a- academic scholarship. What matters is whether or not they know Christ. And it just has to be the most important thing. So when does that start? It starts before you have children. I hope there are godly people in this room that have been praying for the spiritual development of their kids long before they've even had children. I hope that was a prayer that you've had. I hope even from the time you found out that, that you guys were pregnant that you started praying for the spiritual development. I find a lot of parents really pray ardently about the physical health of their children. They really want to have healthy children. Really, that doesn't matter. I, my third was not even close to healthy I mean, she's in bad shape physically. She's a mess. Her body is a mess. And, and yet, it really doesn't matter. You understand that. What matters is whether or not her heart is right with the living God. So we just need to make this in our hearts the key. Start before they're born. Start when they're, when they're in utero. Be praying. And then when they come out, make sure that you have a, a plan in place to introduce them to the truths of the gospel. And the way I've set it up here at the church in trying to help our kids' ministry and giving them a, a vision for what they're doing is going really to the basics of chapter one of the partner's manual. We start with what I call foundational information, which starts with the, the attributes of God. And of course, there's lots of attributes of God, things that you can say are true about God, but the top four that I think are a great summation of the Old Testament teaching about who God is, that He's creator, He's holy, He's just, and He's loving. And I've said to the kids' ministry, which is to be a supplement to your parenting from the very earliest stages, very earliest stages, we've got to teach them that God is the creator, which has so many huge implications for their lives, that God is holy, his standard is perfection, that God is just, he he must punish sin, and that he is loving, that he's not going to leave us in the deplorable state that we're in, he's going to provide a way of redemption. Those four, even if you had nothing else in the first season of your kid's life, and, and my wife just reminded me, she texted me before I came over, and we were just texting back and forth about things that we did just to get them to think about the attributes of God when they were kids. I mean, to think about him being creator. We would point at a building and say, tell me who created that. And, and they would say, people did. And we'd say, that's right. That's right. And then we pointed at a tree. Tell me who created that. Well, people planted it, but God made that. We pointed at a dog. Who, who made that? God made that. We pointed at a car. Who made that? Well, you know, Japan made that, or, or Detroit. But that is just from the very, very beginning to get them to see that. Just like when they make something, that's your picture. You want to throw it away, you can throw it away. You have sovereignty and rights over that. God made you, God made me, God made animals, God made trees, God made this world. That the earth is the Lord's and everything therein and everything it contains. I mean, just to start with the basics of creation, if you just spent years Working on God is creator, God is holy, God is just, and God is loving. Now, you'd set them up because all of those collide, do they not, into our need for Christ. We realize we're sinners, we need grace, and Christ then becomes the focal point of the gospel. That's a longer answer than you probably wanted, but... Um, no, that, that, was all, that was all great. So you talk about laying down those, this foundation, and you talk about doing it through everything. Were there ever times, do you think, that it's good for a parent to almost take a child one-on-one and then try to have a direct conversation about those truths? I mean, how would you go about doing that in a more direct way? Or do you think that's... Well, Deuteronomy 6, that was in our DVR this morning, wasn't it? It was. I mean, there is the template. You were to be talking about this incessantly, talking about it incessantly, and not just in a way 
that gives them the truth as, as indicative fact. In other words, there it is. Here's what it is. God is holy, just loving. You know, that's, it's more than that. Matter of fact, I was just telling Ben, I was reading a book today about parenting, and, and, it's, um, and I appreciate it. The fact it was about basically parenting in an apologetic style. Uh, they write books for preachers these days, and a lot more of them are coming out about apologetic preaching, all because we live in a society that is working against everything we're talking about in such a vehement way, such a violent way, that in the pulpit, you better do more than explain the word and try to apply the word. You better be defending the truth of the word in every sermon that you preach. And it's the same way in parenting. That's why I appreciate this book, you know, shifting the, the emphasis. I haven't read it all yet, so I can't recommend it yet, but so far so good in trying to help us to parent apologetically. It doesn't she doesn't use that word. She's a female author, and it's a great book so far. But you can tell that the whole emphasis is you'd better parent apologetically. You better help them understand that everything they're going to hear about God is not that he's the creator, and he's not holy, and he's not just, and he's not loving, at least not in the way that we would define it. And so you're going to have to help them think through these things and to think apologetically. If you don't have on your bookshelf books, even for, I mean, it's hard to find little kid books that have that apologetic flair to it, uh, but to have at least the, the preteen and teen books that help you think through the kinds of issues they're going to be confronted with. You got to have discussions about science, what it is, about God, who he is, what that means when they talk about, you know, uh, God and science and evolution, creation, all these kinds of things, relativism and absolutism and foundationalism and, and correspondence theory of truth. These are things you don't want to think about. You want to think, well, I've figured this out and God saved me, but you'd better train your kids from the very early stages, if not to parrot those words, because that's not the point, to at least understand the concepts that we're fighting a battle. I just writing a little book on truth for the um, for the uh, focal point dinner that's coming up that I hope to have done by then, or won't won't work. But um, <laughs> the section I was just writing before I walked across the parking lot is on th that great statement that Paul makes that we are really waging war not with the fleshly weapons of warfare, but against argumentation against every argument that raises itself up against the knowledge of God. That's the kind of the militant warfare that we need to have in our minds from the time our kids are little. And if you think, well, I plan to send my kid to, to Christian school or I'll, I'll homeschool my kids, so that's not important. Trust me, that kid needs to learn to be able to defend the truth of the gospel and the truth about God because he's going to be hit with that all throughout his everyday life. So we've got to, Deuteronomy 6, be talking about this incessantly. When you pray, and I hope you're not just one of those parents who say, I just like little precious to kind of stumble out these words of prayer, and it's wonderful, and I like it, and we go, oh, it's so sweet, she's praying to God. Can you be instructive in your prayers? It's like Jesus at the grave of Lazarus, and it says he prayed these things because of those that were listening. A lot of my prayers with my kids from the very beginning, and we pray all the time with our kids, especially when they're very little, when they wake up, when they go to breakfast, when they, you know, um, when we're going anywhere in the car, when we're dropping them off, when we're putting them to bed, we have these extended times of prayer with our kids. And so much of the praying that we do as parents, as we pray before our kids, which is really what we're doing, when they're little, they're not Christians, but they're listening to us pray, pray for them. Uh, we're helping them understand all the things that they need to, to get about the foundation of who God is and what the gospel is. So it needs to be a constant, constant dialogue. You need to read to your kids, not just the Bible, but you need to read to your kids basic concepts of truth, even if it's in a book, I mean, depending on their age. There's so many great Bible books for kids, and I think 
I've got those lists. I didn't bring any of those tonight, but a lot of supplemental books that will help you even from the time they're very young and even before they can speak, just reading to them about the basics of the truthfulness of the Bible, the reality of God, the authority of God, the problem of sin, the focus of redemption in Christ. These are the kinds of things you need to be coming constantly out of your mind. And if that's not the foundation they get in your home, and you keep sending them to church or even Christian school, and you wonder why when they're 15 they bail on everything, it's because you didn't do what the Bible says. Sending them to church is not training them up in the way they should go so that when they're old they won't depart from it. You can't claim those promises if you didn't practice Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6 means we're constantly, incessantly talking about these issues with our children. We, we must, we have to, because what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Yeah, we'll get we'll get those lists and we'll we'll send them out in a, in an email. But you so you talked a lot about the foundational issues, which if anybody's been through Partners Chapter One, you know, familiar with that. God is Creator, holy, just, loving. But, you know, eventually that chapter gets to topics of repentance and yeah. faith, um, the response that everyone needs to have to become a Christian, to turn from sin, to trust Christ. What about introducing those topics and really? even getting pointed with your children of they need to repent and they need to put their faith in Christ. You know, how should a parent think through going about that with their kids? Well, to quote a Puritan, you ought to hold in high skepticism every childhood expression of piety. You just ought to. Because I could teach my kid from the earliest ages to say, Heil Hitler, you know, Heil Hitler, right? I, I could have them recite the Communist Manifesto. I could have them, you know, I don't know, um, bow down to, you know, the North Korean dictator. I, I could do whatever I wanted to do in directing that kid to parrot back whatever philosophy or theology I give him. So you ought to hold in high skepticism your kid's expressions of piety and stop because I think it's lazy parents often, and I'm not trying to indict you because it's not you, people at other churches. Um, <laughs> who feel like they want to celebrate because their kid made some kind of expression of their, you know, wanting God. I want to be a Christian. I want to pray a prayer. I want Jesus in my life. I, you know, whatever it is. And we go, oh, good, fantastic. Praise the Lord, they're saved, right? Uh, trust me. Youth groups are filled with teenagers that say they're saved. And yet 80% of them across the board, and in many churches much higher than that, they go out after high school they don't even make it through their senior year in most cases, and they never come back to any expression of Christianity for the rest of their life, right? First John 2 says they went out from us because they were not really of us. Had they been of us, they would have remained with us, see? So I can, I can introduce you to, in the average church, a ton of 14, 15, 16-year-olds. We baptize slew of them, a slew of them, that right now would tell you, I don't want anything to do with it. Those homophobic people I used to hang out with when I was a kid, that's where they're at right now. And it's not because parents didn't applaud their conversion, but it's because I think so often we didn't hold in high skepticism their expressions of childhood piety, to quote the Puritans. So we need to be much more skeptical about it. And that means I'm not just immediately trying to get, hey, say that you trust Christ. Say that you repent of your sins. Okay? Of course, that's what I want. But I love the way my wife so often modeled, probably more so than me, in praying as we prayed together with our children to pray in a future tense, even into their between years, you know, I pray one day, uh, you know, Stephanie or John or Matthew uh, will become a genuine Christian, will really have his or her heart changed from the inside out. And you'd think, man, how, how insulting that would, must be for your 14-year-old or your 13-year-old. You know, that I think is such a healthy way to kind of show in your prayer life that your ultimate desire is to see true conversion. 
Does that mean that there's going to be times when your kids just freaked out and not sure about their salvation? Well, yeah, it might. But I'd much rather have that than the 80% of these teens that simply have parents applaud and say, go, go, go quick, sign up for baptism. That's fantastic. It's good to have you saved now. And to show that kind of healthy skepticism because children are children. They're followers. They want to please you. So what we're trying to do is give them enough rich theology in their upbringing that this gets them to a place of personal crisis. And it's going to, right? I mean, the point is, and I hope every one of you who's a real Christian in the room has gotten to that place of personal crisis where you say, I am a sinner and I'm lost and I'm going to hell if I do not get right with the living God. And you throw yourself on the mercy of God. That has to come from the inside. God has to do that work in their life. And that's going to come together when those concepts of the gospel coalesce. Therefore, to quote a great theologian, Keith Green, um, you know, you don't have to lead anybody in a sinner's prayer because real sinners who are being converted by God, that prayer gushes out of their heart. And it's true. I've led plenty of people to Christ. And you don't have to say, repeat after me, like you see at the Crusades, you know, at, at Angel Stadium or whatever. These people are breaking out of their guilt that they feel before the living God because they understand their sin. So uh, st stop with the kind of, of, of the, the template forms of here, do this, say this, respond this way, because you could be teaching them Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam, and they would probably do the same. You've seen those Islamic uh, films of these little kids with their bayonets and saying, you know, Jews are pigs and all that. I mean, it, you can get kids to say anything and do anything. And what you need to realize is it's not about conformity from the outside in. It's about a God thing, a transformation from the inside out. And all I can do is pray for that, hope for that, and set him up for that as best I can with what I'm teaching him. So I, I, I would say repentance and faith needs to be discussed a lot. Uh, but it's not in the sense of here it is, now do it, do it. It's about praying for it to happen in their hearing. It's about hoping for it to happen in their hearing. It's about having that sense of expectation that, you know, we trust that one day this becomes something that really you own in your life that God takes a hold of in your own heart. And um, that's different than I find a lot of parents. I, I went through it. I was a kid. I, I grew up in church. I, I parroted the prayer. I threw the pine cone in the fire, walked the aisle, got baptized. I remember walking into the baptismal tank, and these lights kind of remind me of it. It was a big auditorium, and I walked in, and everyone laughed when I walked in because I was just barely over the water line, right? The pastor didn't work, have to work hard to baptize me. And I remember looking down at the lights and seeing all the reflection of their glasses from the lights, just the way the lights were. And I, I thought, you know, this is how, how funny this is you know, that it's just such a cute scene of a little kid in a baptismal tank. And I parroted back what everyone parroted. Well, I was lost. I was lost, but I was a good conformer. Didn't smoke, didn't drink, didn't do all those things that all these other kids, you know, at school were doing. I, I towed the line, president of the youth group, not saved. And I didn't know I wasn't saved. I'd look back at that and say, hey, I did what my parents told me to do. I didn't have some big track record. I don't have a Calvary Chapel pastor's testimony where I was selling drugs or doing whatever, you know. And those are great testimonies, but that wasn't my testimony. My testimony was the church kid who conformed in every way to what the church expectation was. But I wasn't saved. Why? Because it was Christianity from the outside in and not a transformation of God from the inside out. And that's what has to take place. And that's what we're praying for. That's what we're hoping for. So be careful with, you need to repent of your sins, Johnny. You need to put your trust in Christ, Johnny. At some point, Johnny's going to say very early on, okay. Especially if you say, because you'd go to hell if you don't do this. Well, I don't want that. You're going to heaven, right? Yeah, well, I won't go where you're at. You're my mom and dad. Okay, well, pray this prayer. Say this stuff. There's a big difference there. And how many people do you know that have this story of a three-year-old, four-year-old, five-year-old conversion 
that eventually tell you, well, then I really got serious about God in, in junior high, or I got really serious about God in high school, or man, everything really changed in college for me. Even if they don't have this circuitous path into, you know, getting, getting laid and partying and, and, and getting drunk every weekend in college, they still, they may toe the line, but they'll say, oh, but it was here where something really changed. Well, Christianity is not a two-phase experience, you understand. There's no, you know, turbocharge that, that, that sets in somewhere else. Real conversion happens from the inside out for those that understand their sin and throw themselves on the mercy of God. It starts with the indwelling of the Spirit and their change from the inside out. That starts at the beginning of the Christian life. So I know, and I'm not ditching or in any way trying to dismiss the value of a kid wanting to be with God. I want to be in with God. I want to believe the truth about God. I want to, and here's the challenge of parenting, to encourage any move they make toward God without giving them a false assurance that any move toward God is conversion. And that's the balance you have, I think, as a parent, as a wise parent, not giving your kid a false assurance. Great. A couple questions based on some things you said there. First, that balance that you were talking about. Let, let's make it real practical and just say, they have a kid that goes to winter revival and comes home from the weekend and says, hey, mom and dad, I just became a Christian. And, you know, how should they respond to that to keep that balance of encouraging movements towards Christ without giving that false assurance? What would that look like for a parent to do in response to a situation like that? It reminds me of uh, Pete's testimony, which I'm sure you've heard many times, but maybe some of you haven't. And he likes to mock me about it every year when his spiritual birthday comes around. But he says to me, not every year, but almost every year, he says, do you remember the day I came to you and said I became a Christian? Because it was many, many years ago I was preaching and, you know, Pete was Mr. Successful uh, Businessman, drove into the parking lot with his red uh, Mercedes and, you know, he comes in and gets convicted under my preaching and... Uh, you know, has a conversion experience, a story of, of his life being changed. Well, you know, and I don't know, it's a Pete version of the story, but he walks in and <laughs> says, uh, you know, do you remember what you said to me when I said I'd, be, I'd become a Christian the week before? And I said, no, uh, I do now, but I still say no just so he can retell it. <laughs> he says, he says uh, you told me, Get back to me in a year, and let's see if you're still walking with the Lord, you know? He says that's what I said. I don't know if I said it quite like that. But even with this guy, you know, full-grown Mr. Successful Businessman that walks into the church, I, I, I mean, that's the sentiment I have with my children. Let's see. You know, Paul says, repent and prove your repentance by your deeds, right? John said the same thing, John the Baptist. Let's see you bear fruit that's going to affirm this, right? It's like a, a world full of smokers and someone comes up and says, I've repented of smoking. I, I guess what you should ask is, let's see the fruit of that repentance, right? Because the world is full of everyone telling your kids, keep on living for yourself, keep on living for the world, keep on doing what feels good to you, be who you ever you want to be. That's what the world says. And they're saying, no, I'm going to live for God now. God's got a hold of my life. I am a servant of the living God. Okay? I just think a healthy skepticism of even that most precious and central expression of childhood piety would be, well, let's see. Let's see about that. Right? Now, that's not trying to discourage him. Don't say it flippantly or, or, or dissuading them in, in their move toward Christ. But let's say, hey, if you have repented and God has invaded your life, I guess we're going to see some real changes. And, and I, I'm sure we'll see that played out. 
but let's see how the fruit of that works itself out. And, and I know with every one of our kids, that was some kind of, dis- I don't know if they'll tell their testimony the way Pete tells his testimony, but there was a kind of, let's see how the fruit of this goes. And you can ask all three of my kids, but that's how it's been with, with all of them. And I think that's the right response because I'm dealing with a child, in this case, a pastor's child, right, who's getting preached at all the time in home and in the church. And, and I want to say, okay, before this just becomes another, I conform to the expectation of my family and my church. Let's make sure this is real fruit that comes from the inside out. Another thing you said there, even right at the end there, salvation is something that has to come from the inside out. It can't just be about outward conformity. So some parents or even some teachers and writers will kind of take that thought and say, well, then it's not a big deal about getting them to conform outwardly to rules. I just want to give my kids grace. I don't want to raise a, a Pharisee. Right. I mean, how can the parents here understand that teaching their kids to obey right. and to conform yep. to a certain degree is not at odds with also teaching them about the gospel and something that has to come from the inside out? Yeah. And you know, this is a popular parenting technique these days, or a philosophy, not a technique. It's like no technique is the philosophy. But um, Elise Fitzpatrick is probably probably the most notable. I mean, she wrote so many great books until she had this quote-unquote grace awakening along with, uh, you know, Tully and Tavigian and the rest, where we see where that ends up so often. But, um, you know, she writes this book, Give Them Grace, about how to parent your kids, which I've heard Tullian say the same thing. These guys in this hyper-grace, antinomian movement have tried to get people to say, it's wrong for you to, to expect or demand conformity, which means spells obedience of your children, because, as they put it, you're just going to create a little Pharisee. They're going to be obeying from the outside, and therefore, all you're creating is a legalist, Right? And I say that's one of the most stupid things I've ever heard someone who claims to know the Bible has ever said, right? Let's just start with Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents. If, of course, you're converted and have real fruit springing from the inside out. No, from the youngest of ages. Read the book of Proverbs. Everything about the expectation of a child is that they obey. That's what they are all about. They have one command, right, from Scripture, and that is obey your parents. Do what you're told. That's obedience. And guess what the parents are going to tell them to do? To obey, to do what God says, right? Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Do I say to my kid, well, let's wait to see if you ever have a, an, an internal transformation. Maybe you'll want to go and fellowship with other believers when you're really saved. Never would I say that to my kids. I'd say get your little butt in church because God wants people in church so that they can be head-on hit with the gospel. In other words, the Puritans would say, we would put them in the place of encountering the means of grace, okay? The means of grace. How does God get the grace of salvation to people? Well, one way is through the people of God and the preaching of God. You're going to get that in the church. Therefore, I'm going to require you to obey your parents. I'm going to require you to read the Bible every day. I'm going to require you to pray with me. I'm not going to ask you to lead in prayer, but you're going to pray with me every single day. You're going to go to church. You're going to read the Bible. Even if I'm witnessing to someone, I'm going to drag you along. I've done it sitting there at people's tables. Put him right next to me. You're going to listen to me share the gospel. And, and, and all of this involvement is required because their responsibility is to obey their parents and do what's right. As Proverbs says, even a child is known for his behavior, whether his deeds are good or evil. That is what children are required to do. For you to say and take an adult kind of, of, of expectation, which even that, stop with that. Think about this. Even their logic does not carry on into adulthood. 
My question for my next door neighbor should not be, are you a Christian? Great. Then I don't want you breaking into my house because it, I want it to be an outflow of your obedience to God, right? <laughs> I don't want you to you know, be having drug parties in your backyard or I don't want you, you know, bringing prostitutes into the, into the neighborhood and, and having sex with people that aren't your spouse. I'm going to say, I want you to obey God's word. I want you to be faithful to your wife. I'd like you even to go to church. I'd like you to do what is good and what is right because you know what? For one thing, I love you. As a non-Christian, I love you. And according to Romans 2, I don't want you storing up wrath for the day of God's judgment. Every non-Christian is going to pay for every sinful deed, every sinful thought, every sinful word. I'd sure like my neighbor not to sin, see? So how do I know it's sinful? I go to the Word of God and I say, I don't want you to sin. It's not only good for society, as Calvin would say, the second use of the law, to give us a sense of structure, of righteousness in society, the law of God needs to permeate society, see? But you can get Mike Horton, who's very well-meaning, very smart guy, one of my professors, writes a book, starts with the concept of saying what a tragedy it would be if all these non-Christians were doing the right thing all the time. Well, you get guys like Tullian, who were his disciple, and Elise Fitzpatrick, who were, you know, in, in this this cohort with Tullian, now they're teaching everyone, Crossways publishing it, and we're all, we're all drinking it in to say, oh yeah, I guess we don't want non-Christians obeying God. I guess we don't want our kids obeying the scripture because they're not safe. We're just creating legalists. We're creating moralists. That's rubbish. That's tripe, as the Europeans say. That's, that's, that's something you ought to reject out of hand. It's the th most foolish thing you can do. You don't want your kid. If you're not having wrath stored up for the day of God's wrath, Let's just say my, I come home and my kid is yelling at my wife, right, my son's mother. Do I want to stand back and say, well, you know, give them grace. They're not saved. You know, I guess I'm not going to demand that they, they honor their mother because, you know, they're not saved. Well, if they're non-Christians and my son goes to hell, he'll pay for that outburst before his mother. Am I right? He'll pay. You're not nodding, but you, am I right? I think I'm right, right? That he will pay for that in hell, okay? If he is saved one day. Who pays for that? It's not a trick question. Christ pays for that on a cross, right? Do I really want Christ? I know it's anachronistic and it's back in time. Do I want Christ to have to pay for my son yelling at his mother? That's a sinful act of rebellion and insubordination? Of course I don't. I want less sin in the world, okay? Now, the problem that Horton and Tullian and Fitzpatrick are trying to avoid is what? Well, we don't want legalists. I'm all for that. I don't want a legalist. I've been teaching my kid from the time they were infants not to be a legalist. What's a legalist? Someone who keeps the rules who doesn't mean it? No, that's not a legalist. A legalist is someone, the closest we get to it in the Bible, and it's not a word you'll find in the Bible. The closest we get is a word, a translation of the word law that's translated this way in Philippians 3. When Paul tells his testimony, he says, as to the law, right? According to legalistic, uh, Pharisaic legalist, no, what? According to... Look it up for me, Ben. Uh, Philippians chapter 3. Um, legalistic righteousness, I think is what he calls it. According to legalistic righteousness, a Pharisee. Trying to give his, his resume, right? Uh, circumcised on the third day of the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, what he's saying there in that passage is that we want to be found in Christ not having a righteousness of our own. What is legalistic righteousness in that passage? It's Paul trying... You want to read it now? You got it? Righteousness under the law. Is that how it's translated in the ESV? Yes. Okay, I'm quoting in the NIV and the, and the NASB. But the legalistic, so I wouldn't even get close to the word legalistic in the, well, under ES, the law. Yeah. ESV. Under the law, namos, the Greek word. The idea of legalism in Philippians 3, clearly spelled out, is 
me trying to do right things so I can gain God's favor, which again is what these guys are trying to avoid. That's how it starts, but it filters into an absolutely absurd and ridiculous place in parenting. What it starts with, I fully agree with, and I want my kid to understand that. There is nothing you can do to gain God's favor. There is nothing you can do to earn your salvation. There is no way you can be at judgment day entered into the kingdom of God because you lived a good life and didn't yell at your mother. I'm teaching my kid that from the beginning. That's grace, that's the gospel, that's the cross. And I want to teach them that from day one and they'll never forget it. Ask my kids, they understand that. But they also understand this. You're to keep the rules of the home. And the rules of the home are based, many of them, on the rules of God, like honor your mother and your father, don't lie to us. Don't lie to one another. These are biblical moral truths, and we're going to teach our kids those things whether they're saved or not. If your kid's 21 and says, I don't care about God, I still hope that you want him or her to obey the word of God for their sake, for society's sake, for your grandkids' sake, for the sake of his judgment on judgment day. That's what we want. So yes, I want my kid to obey. I want them to obey from the time they're squirming on the changing table and flipping over when mom doesn't want him to. I mean, that's why we started with the Shabbat. I mean, that's the age. You better have a Shabbat nearby to take that on that thigh and say, you're not going to do this. And you know what? All it takes is a little bit of that discipline. Get my kid to obey. When mom says, stand still, lay still, sit still, or be quiet, they learn to do it. They learn to do it. And that pleases God because they're doing exactly what Ephesians 6 says, and that is to obey their parents. And people that say, that kind of conflicts with our theology. Then you know this. When your theology is driving you to deny clear biblical statements, then your theology's messed up, right? And that's what's happened in the modern movement. That's dying down a little bit because the golden boy of this theology, Tavidian, is no longer you know, all the, the rage these days. But I think he'll come back. And if he does, whatever, it'll be 2.0 on all of this when everyone's publishing these books on it. I hope it doesn't get to that. But all of this was the rage. And you need to understand it's a stupid way to parent, and none of us should parent that way. You want your kids to obey for a number of reasons, primarily because God says children obey their parents. Doesn't, doesn't matter if they're saved or not. We want our kids to obey. What about some of the, along that line, some of the things that are more conformity but spiritual in nature, like your kids praying or your kids singing worship songs or things like that. You even mentioned evangelism, things that are more, it's not just, okay, I'm going to take out the trash when I'm told or not yell at my parents, but things that are of a more spiritual nature, that they're doing something that is directed towards God and not just keeping a rule of the, of the house. What about those things? What should the expectation be, you know, even teaching your kids to pray? Like when should they start praying and having them do that? Well, let's talk about the, the most personal one, I suppose, and that is worship, right? It is, I'd rather a non-Christian sing a worship song than you know, Snoop Dogg or whatever the latest stuff is these days. I'd rather have that. Not Snoop Dogg. I, and he's old. <laughs> My generation. Who, come on, well, who is he then? Uh, oh, yeah, now. <laughs> Taylor Swift. Da <laughs> Looking for something a little raunchier than that. Although that could be raunchy for all I know. I don't keep track of Taylor Swift. I don't keep track of the raunchy stuff. Oh, so. sure. <laughs> Here's, here it is. Listen. Even if God says this about trees and rocks, that the trees, right, praise him, that the rocks and stones could cry out. If nature itself brings glory to God, if an animal in a field, right, brings glory to God, read, read uh, Job chapters 38 through 40. If, if you can't see that God finds pleasure 
in things doing what they ought to do, even in a sense that he personifies creation as bringing praise to him. And even that statement, which is, a, I know, a, an interesting, mysterious statement about praise coming forth from children's mouths, there's nothing wrong with my kid worshiping God as a non-Christian. Nothing wrong with that. And I, I'm sure that would light up the hyper-grace crowd. But you know what? I'd rather my kid learn to, in song, express praises to God, even if they don't understand it, or even if it's not coming from their heart, or even if it's not something that's, that's springing from a regenerate heart. I'd much rather have him... And I'm thinking now, I suppose, I'm thinking of junior church. Walk by it this week, open the door just to look in and wave as all these little kids are singing, right? What are the chances we got a lot of Christians in that room, right? Not much, right? But they're singing worship songs to God. They're simple. But I think that brings pleasure to God even, be, even, even as the swaying of the trees in the forest might bring pleasure to God because mouths were made to worship God, right? I mean, that's what music was made for. So that... At all, that doesn't bother me. Neither does praying. Though I wouldn't have my kid lead in prayer at bedtime or at meals, I would often say, hey, you know what? You're, you're troubled about that. You're concerned about that. You ought to talk to God about that, right? I, I have no problem telling my next door neighbor to call out to God, right? Neighbor got cancer. You know, you should, you should talk to God about that. You should give God your requests. I mean, I got the gospel going on the front burner, but if you're going to ask me about an issue, I'd certainly like you to start to talk to God about it. So I have no problem with my kids worshiping or, or you know, I know you'd say, well, it's not really worship if, they don't, if they're not saved. Okay, but it is objectively, may not be subjectively. And I don't mind them praying. I wouldn't have them lead in prayer, but I'd certainly have them go to prayer as we often encourage our kids, even in discipline. Sit on your bed, think about what you've done, talk to God about this, and, and, and let's deal with the ramifications of what, whatever it is you've done. Um, what was the other thing you said? Pr pr uh, worship, prayer, uh, evangelism, whichever. Yeah, I, no, I think those are the things I yeah. said. So uh, yeah. I, don't have a pro I don't have a problem with that, and I don't think you should either, given the fact that I, I guess our fear, if we're gun-shy about creating a legalist or a, a moralist or whatever, I, I, I think we're, we're, we're walking down a, an absurd path. Uh, I want my kid to do the Christian things as long as I'm not saying, hey, you know those Christian things make you a Christian. That's not the fact. Doing Christian things don't make you a Christian. And, that, and again, if you're not giving that gospel message to them from the very beginning, then you're not teaching them about grace and the cross and sin. So we're always doing that. We, they understand singing a Christian song doesn't make you a Christian. And they understand that praying doesn't make you a Christian. They understand that, that worshiping doesn't make you a Christian. That, they, they get that. Um, but I have no problem sending them to church. Think about it. Even I don't care if they're 17. They're in my house. You're going to go to church. You're going to sit there and be quiet and listen to the sermon. What if my kid puts in headphones during the sermon? Take your headphones out, right? It's not about getting your body in here. It's about you, as the Puritans would say, getting you in, in the path of the means of grace. I'm putting you under the means of grace, and I'm hoping that the message of God will, will change your heart. But you're required to be there. If I'm going to pay for your cereal every morning, you're going to come to church. Or you, and I think earlier when you were talking about laying the foundation, so many of the songs they would sing in church as kids are going to teach them that God is the creator, that he is holy, just, loving, all the things. I guess two other specific things that the New Testament teaches, ordinances, we would call them, of the church, would be the Lord's Supper and baptism. Uh, you know, obviously, we're not baptizing our, our, children, our babies. Um, how should a parent think through when it is appropriate to allow their kids to begin to participate in those things. Obviously, baptism is a one-time thing, and then the Lord's Supper, whenever we do it, as right. a church. 
yeah, theologically speaking, the thing about baptism is it can't be done without a pastor. You can't go baptize your kids in the pool and think you baptize your kids. Any more than I can be sworn into the fire department by having my wife swear me in as a captain on the, on the fire department. Um, it doesn't work that way. The representation of the people of God by the leaders of the people of God that have been ordained as the people of God, uh, pastors who have been appointed by pastors, I, this is the picture of this initiatory right into the church. Therefore, you say, when do I let my kid get baptized? Well, here's the thing. You need a third party for that which is the pastors of your church, not running off to another church. And we're here going to put your kid through a process of interviewing with their pastor and their leader. And eventually we're going to help make that decision just because of the, the, the fence posts we put up around that. So when would you send them to say, go talk to a pastor at the church about being baptized? Well, I think when you're convinced that they're saved. But I think you should be careful about that and recognizing that the ordinance of baptism, water baptism, only reflects being baptized into Christ. Therefore, I'm not concerned, and you shouldn't be either, when a pastor says, let's wait a year before this takes place. Let's wait, you know, six months before this takes place. Because for them, what we want is to make sure that that baptism is a one-time event, and they can articulate, because it's more than just doing it. We want you to articulate and express your relationship with God. So let's wait until you can look back on that and feel good about the way that went. I articulated my, message, my uh, testimony uh, before God as I got baptized. And so you got to defer to the leadership of your pastors in that regard. Secondly, the Lord's Supper is what the theologians called an open Lord's Supper. And that is, that's between you and God. Therefore, you could say, well, I can have my kid participate in that. Well, I would advise you as your pastor, if I am your pastor, to be very careful about that. And, and you should understand there are some strict warnings in the Scripture about people taking the Lord's Supper unworthily. And I think the most unworthy way you could take it is not knowing what it is or not knowing that you are expressing your own participation in Christ by this act. Therefore, I would say I'd, I'd much rather err on the side of saying, let's wait. Even if you are saved, let's wait. Now, put it in my youngest because she just went through it. But my daughter got baptized a week ago, right? Wow, seems like months ago. A week ago, she started taking the Lord's Supper by the allowance of her parents probably um, a year before that, before that baptism. So she becomes a Christian, uh, or so she claims, and she starts to bear fruit. And mom and dad say, it seems like there's real fruit here, and this is real conversion. Therefore, next time we have the Lord's Supper, we're going to allow you to participate. So she has her first Lord's Supper, and it's a big deal for her because she's thinking about the reality of the fact that not only has she had this profession of faith, but now her parents have seen the fruit of that profession, and now she's taking the Lord's Supper in a very sober way the very first time. Well, she does that for a year until she gets baptized because we want to wait for her to be baptized until she was at least in high school to have that ability to know that this is the reality of a changed life, not only for her parents to see it, but we want her to see it in a clear uh, contrasted way from her former life. So, you know, and I even think in our church, you can send your kids to talk to the junior high director. Uh, and I, I know sometimes we do baptize those junior hires in some cases, but more often than not, we're waiting till they're freshmen in high school. Um, and for you, it may be longer. You may say, I don't really know that I'm confident that my 15-year-old's a Christian. Well, then you, as a parent, help them to, to wait. Wait, have, wait a while. Because we, we don't want to see them, you know, going through this thing three or four times. Because they would have to, right? If I'm supposed to become a disciple and get baptized, that means it has to be after my genuine conversion. Therefore, uh, you know, if you say, well, I thought I was a Christian when I was 14, got baptized. Then I thought I was a Christian when I was 17, I got baptized. Thought I was a Christian when I was 20. Well, then you need to get baptized. 
And then it, then it starts to be absurd. And so let's make sure the first time that this, as sure as we can be, that this is a real conversion. In a minute, we're going to open it up for questions. And I would encourage you to keep your questions to the topic of parenting and even if possible, you know, specifically to this topic of talking to your kids about becoming a Christian, what, what that uh, would look like. But as, so we have Ryan and Scott will be going around with microphones, so flag one of them down. If you have a question, just raise your hand and they will come find you. But as they're getting ready, one more question to you. I guess kind of a flip to some of the questions we've asked. What if you have a, a kid that's getting into junior high and, and high school and instead of coming home and saying, I'm a Christian. I just put my faith in Christ. What if they start, while they're still living in your house, saying, I'm not a Christian. I don't, I don't buy this, or I don't want to follow, follow Christ. Well, How would you handle that? I hope you know your kid well enough to go, I know. That would be my answer, right? I know. doesn't change anything about how we've been doing this thing called parenting with you. Everything remains the same. You still got to go to church. Still got to sit through our long prayers at home. Still got to talk about the Bible with us. Still got to go to church. Can't put your headphones in. You got to listen. Still got to go to youth group. Still got to do all that. I know you're not a Christian. It's great that you know that you're not a Christian. That's awesome. So let's keep going in this. Because as long as you're in my house, my job as a parent is to keep you in this arena of the means of grace, to use that old phrase, in places where you're going to get hit with the truth of the gospel. So, okay. And you know what? I think you're one step in the right direction. I know a lot of kids don't announce this unless they've got some act of rebellion they're trying to uh, get permission for. But, you know, if they say that without that declarative act of rebellion, you know, I'm not a Christian, so that's why I smoke pot or whatever, you know, that's one thing. But if a kid just says to you as you're sitting there in the, in the front room of your house, you know, I, I'm just not a Christian. I know. I know. I can see that. But you know, it doesn't change anything about what we're doing as a family. If they make that declarative statement, I'm not a Christian, that's why I can go out and party and get drunk with my friends this week in high school. That's when you say, no, you can't, and you be a parent. Got to be a parent to your kids. And I know most of you have younger kids than that, so we may be getting ahead of ourselves. But when your kid declares he's not a Christian, um, that may be a good thing if it's done in a context of just self-realization. Uh, it can be a challenge for your parenting if they're doing it to kind of get you persuaded to give them permission to, to live like a pagan. Um, and that's not what they're going to do. Under your roof, they're going to live as a Christian. And by that, I mean they're going to have the behavioral restraints that Christian families have. All right, what questions do we have out there? Ryan, do you have a question? So if you have a question, go ahead and raise your hand. Ryan or Scott will come find you. Looks like we've got a question right over there. Hi, Pastor Mike. Um, how do you answer your four-year-old son when he asks you, if we knowing that he's not a Christian at four right. years old, right. when he asks you if he's going to heaven? Right, right. Well, we are praying for you, son, that, uh, that you do. That's our hope, and you know that. We talk about it all the time. And uh, so, yeah, you know, you just keep on, and I've had those conversations, and they've said that to me. You know, you just keep on seeking the Lord in your heart as best you can. We're going to keep on covering you with good instruction and good, you know, connection. I don't want them in, in, their, in their bed terrified because I won't give them assurance of salvation by stating to them that they're saved. I'm just going to keep speaking positive because, frankly, my theology, and, and it's speculative in one regard, is that if, my, if the world exploded where my kid is for, in my home in particular, I think I have confidence that my kid is okay by God's special dispensation of grace. So I'm not going to put them in a place of, you know, you should be 
freaked out of your mind. Now, when you're 14, I don't mind if you're freaked out of your mind about your standing with God. But at four, I don't want you to be free. I just want you to, I want to speak positively about, well, that's what we keep praying for. And, you know, we trust that that's going to be uh, the reality. And, and we can't wait for that day when that God does that, that, that work in your heart. And, but no need for me to do this in terms of you're going to hell. I don't, I don't want to approach my four-year-old that way. Great question. It looks like we got one up here in the front. Hey, Pastor Mike. Hey. Quick question. So how would you counsel and apply what you've taught tonight to a couple if only one parent is a Christian while the other is not? So there's contrasting views where one may discount what the other is saying. Yeah, wow. And it gets even worse when it's a blended family with uh, kids that aren't uh, yours. It gets even harder. Yeah, and, and as I've often said parenting context, it may feel like you're parenting with one hand tied behind your back because you kind of are, but that's all right. God is an expert in trying to, uh, not in trying, in succeeding and making the underdog a winner, right? We can take Gideon and we can defeat the Midianites and there's no reasonable way that should happen. David can slay Goliath. There's no reasonable way that should happen. And you know what? You're in a tough situation when you're unequally yoked, right? And some of that may be your fault, and because of that, you recognize you want things the way we all want them. I want to sin, say I'm sorry to God, and have zero consequences, right? That's not how it works. You might be a Christian, uh, or maybe you were a pre-Christian, and you still married this guy, and you knew you shouldn't, and you've got this mixed marriage now, and you want it to all be easy because you told God you're sorry, and now you're really saved, or maybe you're a Christian married to a non-Christian. Go back in your mind to Numbers, right? Numbers you know, chapter 12, 13, 14, that whole scenario of them sending the spies in, coming back, 10 out of the 12 said, we shouldn't do this. They didn't trust God, believe him. And then Moses and God say, well, then you're not going in. You're all going to die in the wilderness for 40 years. They all repent. They all say they're sorry. They grovel, they cry, they repent in real genuine repentance. And then they come to Moses and say, okay, let's go in now. We'll take the land now. And Moses go, sorry. God says, Sorry you're forgiven. It's like David and his child, right? Sin with Bathsheba, the child's going to die. And he's praying that the child doesn't die. Well, you're forgiven, but consequences are still there. So you may be in a mixed marriage or in a second family and a blended family, uh, and you want it to be like a family that's not that way, where you have two Christians that are committed from the beginning and faithful to one another and raising in a Christian home. I wish I had that. Well, I wish you had that too, but you don't. So now what? Give up? No, work even harder, right? Well, it's hard. My husband doesn't want to do it. My wife doesn't want to do it. I'm kind of doing it for two. Well, yeah, you have to do it for two, right? You're on a power play, to use a sporting illustration. Are you impressed? Yeah. You're impressed I know what a power play is? Yeah. Yeah, you got a man down. Listen to me. <laughs> if two of my guys get in trouble, can I, go, can I go two men down? Oh, yeah. All right. Oh, yeah. So I'm in a, what do they call that, a double power play? Uh, uh, hockey's not my expertise. Oh, now Where's, you become. Can we a, call Pastor Pete? Now you become a nerd like me. It's called a what? Five on three. It's a five-on-three power play in your home, perhaps. Short. It's a shorthand. You're shorthanded, but you know what? That's when you trust God and you work even harder. And all I'm telling you is, yeah, that's going to be hard. And I mean, we can get real practical about the details. Like, my, I want my kid to go to church, and my spouse says, hey, Johnny doesn't have to go to church. He's not a Christian like you. I'm not going to church. I'm watching the football game. Johnny's going to stay with me. You may be stuck, right? You may not be able to win that depending on your marriage and the, and the relationship. But you're going to do what you can. Hey, I paid for you to go to the camp. 
You know, how about we go to this weeknight thing? You do what you can and you work hard. Just like you're on a three-on-five. Is that what it is, three-on-five? Three, a three-on-five shorthanded power play. Great. What other questions do we have? Well, there, go ahead and track down Scott or Ryan. I had a question texted in, and uh, that question was, what about disciplining your children by taking away certain things, and specifically by taking away a church activity, by, okay, you can't go to Awana tonight, or you can't go to this retreat with the youth group. You know, what would you say to a parent that was using that as a disciplinary tactic? My opinion on that, because it was my practice, is we were never going to discipline our kids um, by taking away a church event. Even when the church event was a church event that was you know, a fun church event. Because we've taught our kids from the beginning, you're going to this event, it may be fun, but this is really not about you. This is about you serving. This is about you being a blessing to people. That's how we pray with them in the car. That's what we tell them to do. Therefore, we're not going to take away the opportunity for you to do ministry, which is how we want you to see everything you go to at church. We don't want to take that away from you because we don't want to punish other children for your sin. Therefore, trust me, we can come up with lots of creative ways to make your life miserable and still send you to church this week. So that was our approach. I mean, you may say, well, all they do is have a great time at this, you know, event at the kids thing, and I, you know, Awana, whatever it might be. I, we, just, we decided we're never taking our kids out of a church event as a punishment to them. Uh, we got other ways to punish them, and, and you do too. Uh, I mean, the Shabbat is the number one and best way, certainly when they're really young. Once they get a little bit older, that doesn't work as well, so you got to get creative. But um, come up with another way to, as the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, to make it a painful experience. And once the pain of a sting on their rear end is no longer a, a top ultimate motivation, well then find something else that stings. There's lots of things that you can do besides taking away a church event. And I'm not saying it because I'm the pastor. I'm saying it because I think developing your kids to see church as an opportunity to know God and serve people that needs to be the way you're training. It may not be how they go there, but you ought to be expecting that, and that's why you're not going to take away a church event. But if you choose to do that, I mean, that's your decision. I can't go to chapter and verse on that one. Question over here. Hi, Pastor Mike. Hi. Uh, what's your direction to kids, kids meaning junior high and high school, on dating? And um, if it is allowed in the context of purity, what would your direction for kissing be? Yeah. Um, yeah. I knew you guys had questions on parenting. Well, I don't have the same opinion as all the pastors on this topic, I can tell you. Um, we let our kids date. I wanted to avoid two things with my kids. One is repressing their God-given interest in the opposite sex. I don't want them to repress that in the sense that they are going to pretend they're androgynous and don't really like females, in the case of my older boys, right? Uh, I don't ever want to repress, I don't want to stuff that and pretend like it's not real, so we're all playing a game like you don't really like girls, okay? Um, number two, I didn't want to risk my kids going under the radar on their love relationships, okay? Your infatuation with, you know, Susie Q, I want that to be out in the open, and I want you to be honest with us about it, and I want you to be honest with other people about it. 
There's a lot of nefarious stuff that goes on in church groups because everyone's trying to pretend they're not really dating, right? And what is a date? A date is saying, I meet you here at this place and we're going to be together at some thing. That's a date. I make dates all the time with people on my calendar, right? I mean, that's all that is. It just happens to be with someone that I like, that I have a romantic interest in, okay? Well, romance, right? You say now there's boundaries, purity, right? Of course, purity is what I'm interested in. The Bible says I ought to know, First Thessalonians, how to conduct myself in this vessel that I'm in and, and to my sanctification is to be able to function in an honorable way. And so I understand sex is reserved for the context of marriage, right? There's a lot of uh, romantic expressions, obviously, that surround the act of copulation, to be really uh, transparent here. So I know it's not just that. There's got to be more that I'm concerned with in terms of their purity. Uh, and I wanted to remind my kids from an early age, listen, we're going to let you date under the right circumstance with the right people, right? We're going to get to veto, you know, who you want to go out with. But um, we, want to we want to not discourage that. We want to be honest about your interest in girls, in this case, or my daughter and boys. But um, we, we need you to remember that one day uh, you're going to marry a girl, and just talking in terms of my boys, and we don't want you to treat this girl in a way you don't want your future wife treated because I doubt you're going to marry this person so you'd better be very, very respectful of how you show your interest and in affection to this person. And of course, you know, I, I don't have a problem with my teenage you know, son kissing his girlfriend, uh, but we understand the difference between a good night kiss and making out in the backseat of a car. And see, those were two different things for us, and we made clear this is not what this is about. You're not getting horizontal with, with anyone, right? But we're going to reserve that for marriage. And, uh, and you know, you're all sitting here. You, you were teenagers, right? And we're all sitting here now like, well, yeah, let's make this standard true for our kids because we blew it. Well, listen, you have to be realistic. Your kids are no different than you are in terms of their sexual impulses and desires, right? No different. Matter of fact, they're probably worse off because we have a very lax culture that doesn't know anything about self-discipline and self-control. So, you just need to be realistic about the fact that your kids are going to like uh, people of the opposite sex. They're going to be interested. They're going to want to have the experience of connecting with the opposite sex. And I think it's important. I want my kid to learn how to sit across a table with a girl at Starbucks and know how to treat her. She's, she's a different creature than your dudes at school. So I want you to learn to, how to treat a woman, and that's important. And Dad wants to help you learn how to treat a woman as a special uh, creation of God, right? And that's how it's, what First Peter says. So um, my son started dating. I said, well, you better go talk to her father and see if he's up for that. And they went through all that rigmarole, and I'm so grateful for the godly family in our church where my, I'm thinking of my second son starting and, you know, sat down with him and ran him through the interrogation, and it was all good for my son, right, to, to do that. And, and so I, I think that this is a good thing. And, mo and a, lot of, a lot of pastors and parents will say, well, why should I have them dated? They're not going to get married, right? Well, they are going to get married eventually, maybe not to that person. In the case of my firstborn, yes, married to that person. Um, and, and he's going to get married June the 3rd to the girl he was dating, uh, his first girl he dated in, in high school. So uh, sometimes that works out. And I'm not saying it does in every case, obviously, but I do think that to tell my kid, listen, I just know this, and I hope you all know this too, to have an appropriate godly expression of my interest in the opposite sex 
is going to restrain all the, the, the inappropriate expressions of my interest in the opposite sex. You understand what I'm saying? You know, if a guy has, has a, uh, a drive to be loved and connected with someone of the opposite sex, an appropriate, upstanding, boundary-respecting relationship with a girl is going to keep that, I mean, that, that will be the proper expression of that interest, as opposed to saying, can't date, no one's letting me date, I can't go out with anybody, I really like to, so I'm going to sit in my room with my phone and look at pornography. I'm just saying. Not that every kid that's dating doesn't look at pornography, but I am saying I think an appropriate godly expression of the proper first steps of an interest in the opposite sex is the right kind of expression of fulfillment for the interest that they're having, that they're going to have anyway, so that they're not finding some other kind of perverted release and expression of that interest. That may be too much to handle for parents of young kids at this point. But this is all real stuff, and because you all went through it yourselves, I'm not talking in Chinese right now, right? You all know what it was like as teenagers. So, and I know you want better for your kids. And here's the problem with a lot of parents your age. You can think of yourself in the back seat of someone's car having sex. So you're saying, well, I know the best way to deal with that is say, no, no dating ever, ever until you're 30, and then I don't want to hear about it. I mean, that you're, that, it's absurd. It's absurd. And here's what I'm saying to you. Just because you failed doesn't mean everyone fails, right? Do you understand that? Not everyone has sex before they get married. Not everyone lives the way you do. Not everyone indulges in pornography. I know that you think that's the way the world works, but it's not how the world works. It's how a lot of people work, but it doesn't have to be. So for you to say, stop thinking about girls. Go tell your 14-year-old tell your boy to stop thinking about girls. <laughs> then you tell me how that all went, right? It doesn't work. So I want to help my kids understand there's a process to this. It's a road. You're going to get there. But let's take the first steps together and let me coach you through the process. And, and I think that, that is, that's my approach to it. And now people are going to say, well, the Bible didn't talk about dating. You're right. It talks about arranged marriages. And since that's not probably your alternative to my, to my recommendation, then you know, we're, we're here in wisdom trying to figure out the best way to pair our kids up so that they can create families and reproduce. And that's what God would want for our children. So um, just know, you parents, you do want your kids not to have sex before marriage. There's a million reasons for that. And you can see you're going, oh, I wish I would have. Right. Well, your kids can. It just takes some good, thoughtful, strategic parenting. The answer is not your simplistic, don't think about any of this romantic stuff. It's going to happen, and they're going to think about it. Walk them through the process, and I think you may do better than trying to ignore it. I don't want to repress it, and I don't want it to go underground. I want it to be above board, and I want to I affirm the fact, you know, that you have an interest in the opposite sex. That's great. I'm happier to hear that than hearing that you don't have that. So that's awesome. Let's encourage that in the right way. I think you got a lot of people interested, though, in the whole arranged marriage thing. You might get some takers on that in this, in this ministry. Other question over Would, here. Wouldn't object. Hey, Pastor Mike. Hey. How do you explain predestination to your kids? I, well, easy questions. There we go. Here we go. Same way I explain it to adults, maybe with smaller words, but I tell them this. God never in his word has us stumble over the fact that God has predestined people to salvation and make us think so much about that that we think we have no exercise of our will and decision-making. Of course we do. 
God told us to choose life. God tells us to follow Christ. God calls us to submit and repent and trust him. So I'm going to tell you to do what the Bible tells me to do, and that is do what God says. And I'm going to tell him that's a choice. And I'm also going to tell him what the Bible tells him. If you make that choice, God's going to say he gets the credit for it. So you're going to look back on that and say, I could only do that because God enabled me to do it. That's the doctrine of predestination and election. And that is you are dead in your transgressions and sins. But you know what? You're not dead in the sense that you don't have an animated personality and you're called to make decisions every day. Well, one day I hope my kids make a decision to follow Christ, which in my case, I think they all three have. And because of that, now they've been taught predestination and election from the time they were kids that all those that were drawn by the Father that become Christians were first drawn by the Father. Well, then I'm going to say, you're going to credit God with your salvation and not yourself. So that's all I can do with my kids is not get them stuck on this to a place where they say, well, I guess if I'm elect, I'll, this'll, I'll be a, a, you know, a automaton, I'll be a robot, God will just make this happen. I'm going to say make decisions, make decisions, make decisions. Every day make decisions for righteousness and good and, and, and grapple with the biggest decision of all, to put your trust in Christ and become a Christian. That's a decision that you make, but it's not a decision you're enabled to make. It's a decision that God enables you to make. And, and I know we know that from two sides of the tapestry, but when my kid is little, I'm, I'm having him look at the one side of the tapestry and always saying, there's another side to this, and that is that one day you'll credit God with this if it ever happens. And, and that's all I can say to adults too, right? If you're sitting here as a Christian and you know you're a Christian, the Bible says you couldn't have done that without God taking the initiative. But you know what? You got a story and I got a story when we chose to become a Christian, right? So I'm going to call my kids to choose to become Christians. But I'm going to tell them it wasn't that choice. It was God's choice. Your choice was predicated on his choice. His choice wasn't predicated on your choice. But you know what? All that does is make God great and makes you small. And that's the way we ought to be teaching our kids from the very beginning. God is a great God. And, and he's working out everything after the counsel of his will. Ephesians chapter 1. Great. Other questions? Unless you guys have parenting all figured out. <laughs> hey, Pastor Mike. Hey. I, had a, I, I witnessed an awkward exchange today at work and wanted to get your perspective on it. In light of Luke 6.42, how do you, or what, what guidance or perspective can you give on correcting other people's kids, uh, both who are, you know, brothers and sisters in Christ, the parents are, and maybe some who are not, you know, a, a neighbor, so to speak? Okay. If you walked out into the Iwana circle and you saw a kid stabbing another kid with a pocket knife, would you intervene? Yeah. What if it's, you know, not a life or death situation, oh. some, something, some disruption? I'm... Yeah. yeah. I figured as much this was an analogy to help prove a point. My next sentence would have been, all sin has an, a destructive, corruptive effect, right? I've got to weigh in a situation how destructive and corruptive the effect of this kid's sin is, right, that would lead me to intervene. And I think I've got to look at that not in terms of is it irritating me, right, but is this something really that is a problem. It has a corruptive and destructive effect. Some kid stabbing another kid on the Iwana circle has such an obvious corruptive effect, you wouldn't hesitate to step in and correct someone else's kid, right? Uh, so I'm saying I got to make that decision. Most of the time I'm tempted to cor correct another person's kid, it's because I'm irritated. And I got to think, not irritated before they were doing that, I might have been, but usually it's because you're irritating me. And, and I've got to get to the place where I say, I can't go around correcting other people's kids because I'm irritated, okay? Um, so 
you know, it's a rare occasion that I would step in and correct another kid. It's different at church. You know, I'm walking around with my microphone strapped to my head. I'm a little bit more apt, you know, walking into the church service to correct another, you know, some, another person's kid. I'll do that, I hope, with such style and grace and charm <laughs> that it won't be a, a terrible deal. But I've had a couple situations in 30 years of pastoring where, you know, I've had some parents torque that I would dare to correct their kid. Um, but I think in most of those cases, which it's only been a handful, I think I was probably justified in saying something to them. And a lot of times it's sinning against the parent. That's when I'll step in. And I think it has a corruptive effect because if I let this go, you're going to think I approve of it, especially as a pastor on the patio. And I'll say something about, hey, it's not the way you talk to your dad. It's not the way you treat your mother. I've said that on the church grounds many times. And I think it's because I think this is a problem that if it goes unchecked and you think that I approve of the way your kids are talking to you, this isn't going to be any better. So, uh, but I don't know. In the average situation, if I'm at work or whatever, I, I don't know. Rare. It's rare. Sometimes I want to pull out a Raising Men, Not Boys book and hand it to them. But... Uh, you know, I thought of that when I was writing this book. I thought, oh, this would be a good book to carry around, like to restaurants and <laughs> Costco and stuff. So I've never done that, but uh, thought about it. But yeah, I mean, I don't know the particular situation you're talking about. But I do think that ultimately we're responsible for our own kids until someone else's kid's sin causes such corruption and destruction that I've got to step in and stop it. Other question right over here. Going back to the question about dating, um, can you be more specific about guidance to your daughter versus your sons and how that works with respect to like, women don't seem to, or girls don't seem to have as much drive, but the pressure seems much greater when the star of the football team wants to date your daughter and is pressuring towards having horizontal relationships right. versus nice, you know, committed relationships. And we live in a world, especially with public schools, where there's a lot of pressure on putting people in the back seats of cars. I think there's as many girls in the back seats of cars at Christian schools as there are at public schools. I will go on record of, of saying that. So just to, I'm not defending public schools, they're a mess. But uh, when it comes to kids having sex, smoking pot, whatever it might be, there's a ton of that at Christian schools. Um, yeah, girls are different, obviously, in many ways. They don't have the same kind of, of drive, but I, I mean, a lot of girls in this room, I think, that would nod and agree, even though they don't nod verbally, that you know, I, I got a 15-year-old daughter. She certainly has an interest in, in boys. She's not boy crazy like maybe some 15-year-olds, but clearly I don't want to hide that. I don't want to pretend it's not there, and I want to encourage that. Encourage what? Encourage her interest in boys. I think that's a good thing. To what extent that I'm going to have her, you know, any come on from anybody, hey, come take me? No, of course not. Uh, the issues of propriety, I think, in some cases for women are easier for them to see Maybe harder for them to maintain if there's lots of pressure and they're a weak-willed woman. But I do think if a woman knows, in my case, thinking of my daughter, what the parameters are in terms of what the God says in terms of purity, then I think you know I, I can train my daughter to, you know, and, and there's exceptions obviously, but be able to put the brakes on situations that are going past what they ought to. And I think in every, I mean, I was dating my wife in high school, and I, I mean, you know, a godly woman knows when to say, hey we got to stop at this point. This is, this is going too far. And, well, that was too self-revealing, wasn't it, in that, point, that statement there. But, uh, but the point is, I want my daughter 
and I, I would speak the same way I speak, well, not the same way, but in a, in a similar way, corresponding way to the way I would talk to my boys about positive. In other words, in the book, I talk about, for our boys, talking about what, um, you know, what you want to find in a wife. I say the same thing to my daughter all the time. We talk about what kind of husband do you want to look for? What kind of man do you want to, you know, marry? And, and of course, I'm guiding that. It's not usually an open-ended question. And unfortunately, I may have ruined my daughter, the things that I hear her say about the kind of guy she's got to have. But, um, it, you know, it's, it's uh, I have some funny stories, but I won't tell them now about that. But yeah, I mean, I want, I want her to understand that I know that she has an interest in boys and that one day she'll likely be married and that she's going to uh, try to look for the right kind of guy and be the right kind of girl for that guy. But then to know, yeah, you're going to have pressure, you know, in terms of intimacy and, and affection that is, is going to be driven by a guy nine times out of ten, and you got to know how to put the brakes on that. Yeah. Great question. Do we have another? Right, right there. So She's smirking already. I know, where this, to, I know where this is going. Go ahead. Trying to figure out how to word it. Mm. Anyway, um, regarding your daughter and dating, yes. what age is that appropriate? What does a first date look like? Is it a group date? Is it chaperoned? Do you have any wisdom and guidance on that area? The age, I think, would depend on the maturity of my child. Okay? Um, and, and I think that would depend. I, I think I would appreciate what I've encouraged of my sons, and that is uh, a boy to um, talk with me, as scary as that might be, before you start asking my daughter to one-on-ones at Starbucks or whatever. Um, I, I mean, I'm not the kind of guy that would demand that, but I would certainly orchestrate that it happens in one way or another. I'm not sure I would give the interrogation that some of my that my boys may have been through, but um, I certainly want to have that sense of responsibility. I know plenty of guys here have had that conversation. You know, the mentor couples I look around and know have had that conversation with suitors that have come to date their daughters. Um, Chaperones, the good thing about my life is that I'm such a public person in, in the area. It's hard for my sons to go on dates without me getting texts from people, hey, I saw your son. Um, I've had pictures sent to me of my son secretly taken at, you know, Caro's or whatever, you know. Um, so I often hear about it. And the good news is not a bad thing to get, um, find my friends, not only for your daughter in this case, but for anybody who wants to take her out. And I know you can get around almost every electronic surveillance device, but I want to know where they're at. I remember my boys, I don't want to out them too far on anything, but, you know, when I could see where they're at, and I want to know, well, how private is that place you went, you know? And I have those conversations, right? Because I see where you're at, and I see how long you're there. It's one of the advantages of modern technology. At least I know where my kid's phone is at any given time. Kids are smart. They could outsmart me on all that, I suppose. But, um, you know, I know where their phones are. I'd sure like to know where, you know, your boyfriend's phone is and where your phone is, and... I want to, you know, obviously there's rules. There's rules about I need to know where you're at. I need to know how long you're going to be there. I need to have the access to you the whole time. You know, it doesn't mean I'm chaperoning you. It doesn't mean I'm sending a, a chaperone with you. But, um, you know, these are, 
these are public places you're going to. These are public places where you're getting to know how to relate to someone of the opposite sex um, without that degenerating into the backseat of a car. Yeah. I think we got time just for a couple more questions. That wasn't enough of an answer for you, was it? You wanted more out of that. You did. No, I see it. Got a question over here. I'm going to get a follow-up. Yes. I was just wondering, what parameters should we set on how close of friendships our kids should have with non-Christians? Yeah. Well, and and I hate setting any hard and fast rules, but, um, you know, we had some in our home about what that looks like. Um, I want my kids, even as non-Christians, to see their non-Christian friendships as... um, missionary opportunities, not missionary dating, not of the opposite sex, but you're like in my daughter, her girlfriends, if they're non-Christians, we want to see that your purpose in that relationship is what Ephesians says. You're there to shine the light of Christ and to see them saved. So uh, that's how we want this to work. In other words, it's not, I'm going to go over to Jenny's house and hang out. It's, I've invited Jenny to come to, you know, the, 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 uh, you know, the edge event this Friday night. Great, well, we'll go pick her up, and we'll take her, and you guys can go, and on the way home, we'll go to Yogurtland and get some yogurt. I mean, I, we want them to have that kind of effect of drawing those kids to some interest in God and some church activity, which when they're, you know, 8, 9, 10 years old, that's, that's how we do it. Um, I will say this, that when I talk about not going over to Jenny's house, I don't know that we ever had them in a non-Christian's home as a kind of a play date or whatever, um, unless there was a family from, from the church that we felt good about. Um, and, and I can say, and now my daughter's 15, so it's a little different ballgame, but she just went, I think it was last Friday, and again, I don't want to, don't tell my kids I've been talking about them all night, but she went over to this non-Christian's house, and, and um, it is a gal she's been trying to share the gospel with. My kid, I think, has been saved, my daughter, for a, over a year now, and... Um, it was funny because, you know, we had another event, and we're busy almost every night, but we, you know, said, great, we'll drop you off, we'll pick you up later, and it was funny because I thought as I was picking her up, I don't remember too many of these experiences. This may be the first time she spent the entire evening with this non-Christian family. Well, just even the story she told on the way home about just how awkward so much of it was, I thought, okay, I, I think that is a pretty good rule. She can see very clearly the difference between going over to your home, I hope, and going over to some non-Christian home. So we're careful about that. We don't want, we want our kids to be friendly with everyone and friends, we hope, with people that love God. But sometimes you're going to have connections with non-Christians, but we want your, your focus in that relationship to be uh, missional, if you will. We want you to see that person brought to the exposure of the gospel. So if we don't see that, if it just becomes hang time, we're going to try to redirect that. Great. Last question. Pastor Mike, um, I have a neighbor who, I'm right here. Oh, there you are. Hi. Um, I have a, a neighbor who's a single mom with a daughter who is my daughter's age, who likes to, they play together. And um, she's not a Christian and very proud of it and would love that her daughter's not a Christian. Um, our rule in the house is we have veggie tales or other Christian things on, um, we pray, everything like that. Um, how, what, for, 
what would you say or what would you do when a parent is going, you're taking it too far? A parent what? When a parent is saying, you're taking it too far. I don't want my daughter praying. I don't want my daughter watching. So you got a non-Christian parent saying of her non-Christian daughter, when she's at your house, you're taking it too far with all your Christianity stuff? Well, if, if it gets that far. But it's if just it starting to feel like it may get that yeah, far. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm not going to change who we are as a family for some non-Christian kid in my house. If that's what you're saying, what's the temptation here? Um, I mean, a lot of my okay, answer let's... is Ibid because I want to say, I, I am not going to allow my child to get into it. And this is 1 Corinthians 15, right? Bad company corrupts good morals. I've worked hard, even for my non-Christian kid, to live in a way that she's living under the, let's call it this, a God fear, right? Non-Christians in the Bible, but they fear God. I understand that's a category of people that I think our pre-converted children are. They're God fears. I can be set back a long way by having my kid have a best buddy, a best friend who does not fear God. And therefore, I don't want them to be tight buddies. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and do what I can as a parent, and I'm, I can succeed. I'm the parent to orchestrate that that's not the case. Therefore, I got a neighbor. Well, that's a convenient relationship, but I can only go so far because they're not saved. They're proud to be non-Christians. I mean, they're vocal, anti, you know, whatever. They're atheists, whatever they are. I, I, I'm not going to change anything about what's going on. If you don't like what we do at our house with your kid, I'm sorry. And I wouldn't even wait till it gets to that. You know that this is not going to be a long-term best buddy relationship with your daughter. You know that. Therefore, you're going to have to start making sure your kid in the orbit that she has has more kids that share at least the fear of God that your kid has. And that's what I would shoot for. Your kid's best friends need to be, as I've said many times, from your church. That should be your kid's best friends. And you need to make that happen. And, and yeah. Go, go ahead. Follow up. So, just real quick. So... If, if the child is asking questions, which she's five, if the child is asking questions, it, it, I should answer them in how I would answer Absolutely. Anything. What are you afraid of? I'm not really afraid of anything. Or Sounds her, like it. But no, I, I just, yeah. Well, no, but I mean, seriously. And I'm not saying you're afraid of, of getting killed, but I mean, there's a concern that you have. What is your concern? I mean, so you say you answer everything the way you would answer your daughter if she asked it. What, are, what is your concern? What's going to happen? I do that then. I, I would answer every question my non-Christian neighbor asks me. I would, I would answer just like it was my kid. And, and you know what? At some point, if your concern is they're going to pull away and they're not going to like that, okay, that's all right. I'm not going to go overboard when they walk in and go, great, now we're going to start the church service, right? <laughs> I'm not going to do that. But if we watch VeggieTales and they say, hey, where's you know, Friday the 13th? Well, I, th I want to watch that. Again, I'm dating myself. You can update that if you'd like to. <laughs> Listening to Snoop Dogg and watching Friday the 13th. <laughs> you just keep on doing what you do and do it for Christ, do it for the glory. Your home is supposed to be a place, if you think of 1 Corinthians 7, where it's set apart. If there's one Christian parent, there's an influence. God has that family set apart. You don't want to accommodate the non-Christian neighbor in a way that changes that sanctified status of your home. We're going to watch what we normally watch. We're going to, we're going to poo-poo jokes that are out off color like we would if you were my kid. We're not going to let things happen in our home that we wouldn't let happen if you weren't here, neighbor kid. And, and we don't tolerate it because that sustains that, that, that sanctified context of your home. So, yeah. More to that one maybe too, but 
that's the best I could do with what I had. Great. Well, we are out of time. Thank you so much, Pastor Mike, for being here. We really appreciate you uh, taking some time. And uh, let me just close us and close our time in a word of prayer before we uh, go get our kids. God, we thank you uh, so much for the opportunity we've had tonight. We thank you for Pastor Mike and just the leadership he brings at our church. God, and I, I want to lift up all the parents and even all the potential parents in the room, God, and just ask that you would strengthen them, that they would do the work of uh, correcting and directing their kids in the in, in the instruction and the discipline of the Lord. And God, we do pray for the, the kids, many of whom are even on this campus right now, God, that they would uh, grow up and turn from sin and put their faith in Christ. And God, that the parents in the room would be doing everything they can to uh, lead the kids in, in that direction, God. So we lift this up to you. We lift the, these, these families up to you. In Jesus' name, amen.